After sensationally winning the kart title as a rookie and then storming to the Indianapolis 500 at the first attempt a year later, Juan Pablo Montoya returned from two years racing in America as hot property at Williams in 2001. It didn't take him long to make a huge statement against none other than Michael Schumacher, although his wait for a first win was perhaps longer than anyone expected. We'll go through Montoya's rise from newcomer to F1 winner in great detail today on Bring Back V10s. I'm Glenn Freeman and before we introduce our guests, remember to get your questions in for anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005 for our series finale and you can use the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. And if you haven't already, why not join the likes of Scuderia Rob, Malk Lee and JSDF1 in leaving us a five-star review and submitting a question that way as well. After our recent Austria 2002 episode, we've had quite a few requests in our reviews to talk about something that sheds some positive light on Ferrari and Michael Schumacher in the future. That sounds like a very good idea to me and we'll put that right in Series 3. There are plenty of Schumacher masterclasses to choose from and in fact we'll be talking about his F1 debut with Jordan next week. But we love hearing your feedback and really appreciate suggestions like that so we can talk about the stories you want to hear, so keep them coming. But now let's get on to our guests for today. Mark Hughes is back with us and I'm delighted to also welcome a man who knows today's subject matter inside out, having basically spent his entire life involved in the F1 team set up by his dad, Jonathan Williams. Jonathan, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here with us. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us on Bring Back V10s at what I think is a, a fitting time to be looking back on a story from Williams's past. Thank you. No, it's a, a great pleasure to be here. And no, I thank you for inviting me. And yeah, looking forward to talking about uh, one of the sort of more exciting and fondly remembered eras of our history, drivers of our history, uh, certainly from the point of view of myself, my father. We're all great fans of uh, this particular character that we're going to dissect in the moments ahead. And yeah, that's certainly an apt time, given sort of the recent days and weeks of Williams and where we are now. It's probably now more apt than ever to look back and uh, enjoy and reminisce over the fond memories and perhaps also dissect things that didn't work as well, because that's always fun, isn't it? But uh, yep, certainly looking forward to uh, yeah a great little subject, uh, which is certainly very close to my heart today. Absolutely. And you can have the honour of answering what is our traditional opening question. So when you think of our subject matter, which is one Pablo Montoya in 2001, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Perhaps selfishly for me, the realisation of an ambition, something that's from rather a young age, I wanted to achieve and impress upon my father and Patrick, which, which was to allow them well, which was for them to allow me rather to choose and put a driver into the car. The first time that they let me do that was the young driver evaluation at the end of 1997. But of course, Juan Pablo was a key feature of and the driver that we chose from that process to be our test driver for the years ahead, which of course then became somewhat sort of uh, uh, moved in a different direction with the American program with Chip Ganassi. And, but I always wanted to... Uh, impressed to my father and Patrick that I could sort of be heavily involved in bringing a driver into one of our race seats. So, of course, him arriving in that position in 2001 was sort of a major step and near completion of that for me. So for me, it's uh, it's something very important and fondly remembered for me because of that. I think that's going to give us a lot of interesting insight as well from what was going on inside Williams. Uh, Mark, welcome back. What stands out for you about today's subject? Well, my first race that year was in Delagos, uh, the third round, because I'd missed the first two because my daughter was being born. She's now 19. And um, it was the race, of course, that he, he really sort of um, delivered on, on all that excitement that he'd been um, promised when, when he came in. So, yeah, there was that there was the infamous move on uh, Michael Schumacher on, on the restart, uh, which was just such an exciting moment for Formula One in general. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what comes to mind when, when you say those words. Yeah, and it won't be long before we're tucking into that story and that, that event. But we'll start our story off in the summer of 2000, which is when Jensen Button gets told by Williams that Montoya is coming back from the States for 2001 and Jensen is being moved aside. Button said in his book that Frank Williams had always been upfront about wanting Montoya back and Jensen knew the terms of his contract and that Williams were entitled to do what they did. 
Interestingly, Button also says that he only got the Williams drive for 2000 in the first place because Frank failed to get Montoya back a year early after Alex Zanardi didn't work out for 1999. Jonathan, you briefly mentioned Juan Pablo having to go to America for a couple of years. Do you think ultimately it was the right decision for everyone that he stayed there for a second season in 2000? Uh, I think perhaps not for everyone. With all due respect to Jensen, you could perhaps argue that having a slightly earlier foundation to the grander plan of Juan Pablo and Williams would have benefited by getting a year's head start. But, you know, from a, a racing fan point of view, which I am, I know we all are, you would have to say that, I mean, well, from my point of view, had he have come back in 2000, he wouldn't have had that fantastic turn up for one weekend, beat them all, show them all the way home at the Indy 500. And I think just the way that history sort of has a way of working itself out. So I think from a romantic and nostalgic point of view, I'm happy that it did happen. I would say if you'd have asked us the question around the time that we were looking to plan our drivers for 2000, then we would certainly have wanted them back as of course we tried hard to do so. But I think all in all, in terms of how history has set itself, the fact that he won the Indy 500 first attempt, led 170 out of 200 laps or something. I think that's just really cool. And especially as he was racing in Nazareth on the Saturday afternoon before hopping back and forth on planes. It's just one of those really cool moments in history that has a lot of stories attached to it. So in hindsight, I'm, I think we're all very happy the way that it worked out for everyone concerned. And of course, we got a great year with Jensen, who's a great driver and a very cool part of our history to have sort of the uh, Formula One launch point of a future world champion on our CV as well. So all in all, happy and cool with it. Yeah, it's such a huge moment in US racing history as well for Montoya to be the man yeah. to do that. And Mark, looking at uh, Jensen's situation, was it fair enough from Frank to move Button on after that first season? Ultimately, I think so. There were three good drivers and, and three into two didn't fit. It wasn't easy. Uh, there was a complicating Ralph BMW Germany thing too. Although I recall the BMW media session after Button had qualified third at Spa, just a whisker off the front row in a car that at that stage definitely wasn't front row material. And he was about three tenths and three or four places ahead of Ralph. And Ralph had been re-signed. And I was at this session early before most of the others had arrived and Gerhard Berger, who was BMW's advisor and one of the directors of the program, came and took his seat and he said, I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking the same. You know, in other words, they maybe re-signed the wrong guy. <laughs> so maybe it would have been possible if, if Frank had wanted to go with a button-JPM combination in 2001. And then at the time, that would probably have been my preference if I'd been in Frank's shoes. But that purely from a lineup perspective, but you know, there were complications of the BMW partnership, com contractual ramifications, I'm sure. I think that would have been a great combination though, and one that would have probably been a bit less fractious than the one we got with Ralph and JPM. It would have been very tough on Ralph though, as he'd been performing to a pretty high standard and Button showed the next season in the awful 2001 Renault that he wasn't really seasoned enough just yet. So in hindsight, I think Frank probably got that one right. Um, he got himself into a bit of a knot, but that basically came about because Alex Zanardi hadn't gelled there in 99 on his return to F1, you know, contrary to everyone's expectations. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, I think one thing that we can perhaps, which I can sort of interject here, which I think we'll come to a bit later, was that, and again, you know, it's, it, 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 I like being open and perhaps it's, it's nice to tell stories after the event. I think... My father, I mean, I think from conversations, my father probably, because as we all do, being around racing drivers, building our programs, you get a little bit of a hunch about the way things will go. And of course, it doesn't always happen, as is the case with this example. But I think my father was sort of pretty convinced that eventually Jensen and Juan Pablo would be the ultimate pairing for Williams BMW. I mean, with all due respect to Ralph, but... I do notice elsewhere in the media that Ralph is sort of wearing his heart on his sleeve a little bit now about his memories of Williams. So I don't really mind throwing in there that <laughs> I was estimating. I think actually of these three guys, the longer term better duo will be Jensen and uh, Juan Pablo. And I think certainly, I think 2003 might have been the year that that, this, that, that could have happened. But as I think we'll come across later, by the time we got to the spring, summer of 2001, Ralph's stock was rising considerably at a time where after the hype of Interlagos, Juan Pablo's sort of career didn't, didn't it, it just bobbled just a little bit sort of through the races after Interlagos. And Ralph sort of built a lot of momentum through there, especially races like Imola 
Canada, for example, great wins where Juan Pablo, with all due respect, wasn't really uh, on the same page on those races. So, but I think that was certainly what my father was thinking of. And I guess you would have to say that of the three of them, the only one that ultimately delivered all the way was Jensen, who got all the way to being a world champion. So, so I think from my father's side, he always had the hunch that probably of those three guys, the ultimate, the ultimate configuration or pairing within that was Jensen and Juan Pablo from conversations I recall sort of taking place around 2000, 2000 2001. And that would have been a great lineup as well. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> a, a, a parallel universe somewhere it happened and it probably went very well. Yeah, we love that sort of thing on this podcast as well. Now, fittingly, Montoya's long-rumoured deal was announced at the US Grand Prix at Indianapolis in late 2000. The team kept Montoya away from the media that weekend, but uh, Frank addressed the comparisons to Zanardi, who'd similarly dominated Kart with Ganassi and then not worked out when he came back to F1. On that subject, at the time, Frank said, when Alex was in champ car, he was very, very good, although it did not work for him in F1. One is much younger, a different person, and demonstrating an outstanding talent. I don't think we're entering next year thinking, wow, he will piss on them. It's impossible to do that. He knows what he's <laughs> up against. The man he is replacing is going to be a very hard act to live up to. Uh, Jonathan, I could hear you chuckling there listening to your dad's chat yeah. from the time. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, Montoya's stock was super high at this point, but given the Zanardi experience, did that dampen expectations at all for what Montoya might be able to do when he comes back over? I don't think so, ultimately. For sure, it would have been consideration that two very different drivers, certainly in personality, almost certainly in terms of technique, two drivers at very different ends of their career in terms of where they were at, at an age point or an experience point. But in the case of Juan Pablo, a guy that we were highly familiar with, he'd sort of been with us uh, uh, through a year of testing in 1998, which, of course, was sort of akin in some ways technically to the cars he was coming back to. We were in the groove tyre era, for example. Okay, when he was with us, quite a bit of the testing was focused on the uh, Goodyear Bridgestone tyre war, but still which of course actually is relevant because by the time he came back, it was Bridgestone Michelin with whom we were. Uh, I think also, I mean, there were little things that sort of, I mean, I think at the 1999 Spanish Grand Prix, really trying to work things out with Alex, we put steel brakes back on the car, steel discs back on the car for the first time since probably sort of early 1980s, sort of DFE era stuff. And uh, so of course that could probably give just one example of sort of like how far out we were with Alex, things just weren't working. We had to go to those lengths to try and adjust and leave no stone unturned to try and find where the performance could be found. And of course, you would know that with Juan Pablo, that wasn't a problem because you'd experienced it through 98. You knew where he was compared to Villeneuve and Frentz and the race guys that year. So, I mean, short answer, no, I don't think it would have been an overriding concern coming back for 2001. That's fair enough. And uh, yeah, I think I remember Patrick Head actually saying that those steel brakes weren't as bad as, as they were expecting. Williams launches its car in late January 2001, and already there's talk of a rivalry building between Montoya and Ralph Schumacher. Ralph is reported to have said the team should have kept Button for 2001. Williams has never been a team that's all about team orders or dampening those driver rivalries. And at the time, Frank said they are two hard-headed drivers and it is not in their mentality to seek to be best friends. Uh, BMW's Gerhard Berger, who we've already referenced, uh, says it will be good if they bring themselves to the limit by pushing each other. And Patrick Head says in his own brilliantly Patrick Head way that Ralph probably finds it quite tedious that Montoya is coming over from America with so much hype. The drivers play it down. Ralph says the relationship is normal. And Montoya says there are no problems and they are both focusing on their job. The vibe from Williams, which is confirmed by Patrick, is that as long as they don't become as toxic as Nigel Mansell and Nelson Piquet were in the 1980s, then it will all be OK. So, Jonathan, it's amazing to think that, you know, they're still a couple of months away from the season starting and there's already tension. Was this relationship always destined to combust? Uh... I mean, interestingly, and there wasn't as much time for it to prevail, but the relationship the year before between Ralph and Jensen from memory was pretty harmonious relative to two Formula One drivers being teammates. Uh, and on the other end, I would say, no, we never experienced anything 
Mansell-like with Juan Pablo and Ralph. Uh, I mean, I would say two two very, very different drivers. Perhaps you could really side-angle the fact that Michael was the yardstick and have given the rather obvious relationship with Ralph and the rather sort of obvious consideration or regard from Juan Pablo towards Michael. Maybe there was a little something there. I mean, I, I mean you, you, you're always on your guard in that situation in terms of how your teammates are going to react. And it's a little bit of, I mean, in terms of everything that you want your driver to be as well, it's also an acceptable sort of negative aspect to that because you can't really have drivers at this level unless they perhaps got that difficult and prickly side to their character and all these, all these good guys should and probably will do. So maybe a little bit, but then it never, but it never actually reached sort of the PK Mansell. I mean, I'd say it probably didn't even reach. I mean, I'd say it maybe just about creeps onto the podium of different <laughs> Williams relationships, because I'd say that after PK Mansell, you would certainly go Jones Reutemann after the team orders situation at the mm. 81 Brazilian Grand Prix. And, I mean, and Alan certainly for the rest of that year in 81 didn't go out of his way to disrupt Carlos, but he was pretty dismissive, I think, of Carlos. And even that sort of championship day in Las Vegas where Alan was out of contention, he made it very, very clear to Charlie Crichton Stewart, a very, very close friend of the family on the grid. He said, I'm just going to destroy him in this race. I don't care if he's on pole or that he's fighting for the championship. And he not only destroyed Carlos, he destroyed the 24 other guys who lined up that day as well. I think he lapped nearly all of them. So, yes, yeah, so certainly it probably was just about on the podium. It certainly wasn't the hardest thing to manage, Ralph and Juan Pablo. There were bumps, but generally it was okay. Yeah, we'll visit a few of those bumps along the way. But in, in launch season, in terms of Williams's competitiveness for 2001, the message is that they hope to win a race or two. But Frank believes that will require McLaren and Ferrari to make mistakes. BMW has been more ambitious on the engine side, with Berger saying they will be more risky to close the gap to the front. Jeff Willis admits the team has taken time to recover from the departure of Adrian Newey at the end of 1996, being too cautious with its first car after he left for 98, and then taking too many risks with the 99 car, so the 2000 Williams had to be a reset point. Williams wants to be at a McLaren-type level in some areas, was the quote. So, Mark, thinking back to pre-season 2001, what were the expectations for Williams? The BMW partnership got off to a solid but steady start in 2000. So did they need to kick on in year two? They did, yes. And BMW really delivered the most fantastic engine for 01 after a conservative old Renault-like base in 2000 just to get F1 experience and, and data. And it was the, the P80 and P81, designed by Andy Cowell, actually. And it was just a monster. And it had about 30 horsepower over the field. And it was extraordinary that a, a manufacturer could come in and deliver the best engine in, in just its second season. They really raised the bar. And Ferrari and Mercedes got jolted out of their complacency, really. It's, but it's about the combination, of course, of engine and chassis. And Williams still hadn't really fully recovered from the loss of Adrian, you know, four years earlier. The FW23 was an okay car, it wasn't bad. It was the work of uh, Jeff Willis and Gavin Fisher, but it wasn't cutting edge. The BMW, the P80, was just a superb engine. I mean, I think when it turned up, not only in terms of performance, but in terms of packaging, I think it had the nickname, the shoebox around the factory. It literally was that small relative to what we were used to. But uh, in terms of my father, therefore, just reading that, that he... That, and I remember Patrick saying the same, that we might win a couple of races. I mean, uh, but we would need McLaren and Ferrari to slip up. I guess that our test driver from 2000, Bruno Shakira, who lost out to Jensen for the race seat that year, I guess he didn't have the same conversation with me, because, uh, sorry, uh, as with me, with my father, because Bruno was the first to test that engine in the back of an FW22 in, I think, October 2000 at Manicourt. And it was his last gig before coincidentally going off to the States to be part of replacing Juan Pablo at Ganassi the next year. And he came into my office and he, said, and he had this very expressive way of talking. He said, Jonathan, you will win a lot of races next year. That engine is a five-year jump. They have done an incredible job. And I was like, really? He said, oh, yes. He said, this, I've never driven. He'd driven the Mechachrome at the end of 99. Sorry, the Supertech, the Renault V10 architecture. He'd driven the, the uh, first BMW, which, as we said, was shared a lot of traits with the Renault architecture. 
And he came into my office and said, you will win a lot of races. I was like, okay, that's, that, that's fine with me. Let's, let's see you make it happen. Well, I think he was absolutely right as well. We get he to, was, yeah. yeah. We get to the start <laughs> of the season. Montoya only qualifies 11th for his first Grand Prix. Has a little run-in with Villeneuve after accidentally getting in his way during qualifying, but apologises because he was blue flagged too late. He makes a great start and gets into Turn 1 in 8th, but then runs off track and collides with Eddie Irvine's Jaguar at, down at Turn 3. Eventually, he's running in the points when the engine blows up. And uh, Montoya says afterwards that just before the race, Frank said to him, I want to see the aggressive Montoya. Jonathan, can you believe that story? Is that the sort of thing Frank would have said to him before his debut? Oh, absolutely. And he did that quite a lot. I mean, uh, and I mean, I can remember two examples, both of involving the same driver at successive British Grand Prix. I remember being with my father in the back of the garage in that sort of, I mean, the pit lane opens at 1.30, so you've got that like 10, 20 minute window before that where the drivers come out of their changing rooms or trucks. And I remember we were one, two on the grid for that 97 British Grand Prix with Villeneuve and Frentzen. And Heinz Harold walked through to go to the cars and my father called him over and I was standing next to him and he said, Heinz, you're aware of the plan. You've remembered everything. You're happy with the strategy. You know what you've got to do. Just reassure me that you're all good. You know where you are. Yes, Frank. Yes, Frank. Yes, Frank. And off he trotted. A couple of minutes later, Jacques walked past and all, all my father gave Jacques was a wink and a smile. And I said to my father, why did you give one a little lecture and not the other? And he said, because Jacques doesn't need it. And, and then likewise, a year later, I was standing almost in the same garage as with my father during free practice with the British Grand Prix 98. And all of a sudden he began like elbow barging my legs. And I leant down and he said, go into the garage and stick your head in Heinz's cockpit and tell him that pit lane entry was absolutely superb. That's what he needs to do in the race. He needs to remember it. And I, okay, okay, I've never done that before, but I stuck my head into a driver's car, but large engineers and people out the way. And he just looked at me quite weirdly and stuff and said, okay, and then I went off and then, yeah, I mean, there are, I mean that's exactly what he used to say to people. And uh, yeah, and I mean, I mean, one of the best, I mean, this is going on, off on a complete tangent, but hopefully it's quite a nugget. But I, I remember. Yeah, we love that here. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know how he does it, but the only race in 1988 that we, I mean, I know we had podiums at the British and Spanish Grand Prix, and the latter we were actually quite close to the McLaren, but we never got as close to the 88 McLaren, the MP44, as we did in Budapest, where we were second and third on the grid behind Ayrton. I think only front row start we had all that year. And I was about 12 or 13 and I walked from the motorhome. And in those days, the motorhomes were on a lower level. You had to walk up a hill to get to the pits. And as we were doing so leading up to the race, Ayrton walked alongside us and they were chatting. And I clearly remember just being absolutely fascinated. And my father, I don't know how he did this. My father said, Ayrton, in this race, Nigel will either beat you off the line or he'll spin off trying to get past you. And the latter is exactly what happened on about lap five or six, Nigel. How the hell did he know that was going to happen? He said, if he doesn't get you at the start, he'll spin off trying to overtake you later in the race. That's exactly. I thought, how on earth can you predict somebody's going to spin? Exactly. That's exactly. If, if that's what he said to Juan Pablo, I wouldn't doubt it at all. Uh, that's excellent. Second time out in Malaysia was a disaster for various reasons. So we'll move straight on to one of the big reasons we're here, which is Brazil. <laughs> Montoya starts fourth, but is up to second when the safety car comes out for Mika Hakkinen's stranded McLaren. One lap later, the race restarts and one of the most famous overtaking moves of the 21st century takes place. Montoya gets a massive run on Schumacher on the restart, but he's still quite far back. If you go back and watch this overtake, he's quite far back when he dives to the inside at turn one. He clearly catches Schumacher out. And to make his point even further, he then runs Schumacher out of road on the exit of the first corner. Afterwards, after the race, Schumacher applauds the move in public, saying Montoya got it right and that the nudge wide on the exit was not a problem and normal racing. Montoya said afterwards, I know some people may say it was brave to try a move like that on Schumacher, but you can't treat any driver differently. In fact, it is more of an issue for him to be more careful in situations like that because he is fighting for a world championship and he cannot afford not to finish a race. No one is invincible. Now, Mark, you said this was your first race that you attended in 2001. Was this 
the moment that Montoya announced his arrival on the F1 stage? And do you think this is what everyone had been expecting and waiting to see when we knew he was coming back from two pretty explosive years in America? Yes, it was. It was him apparently confirming all that excitement about his arrival as justified. The raw racing abilities of honed in IndyCar, but already evident even before then, especially in F3000. But the restart was just perfect territory for an oval honed IndyCar racer, wasn't it? He was super sharp and as aggressive as he needed to be. Plus, he was extra motivated, he later said, because as they were accelerating up the hill, he said he could hear the Ferrari engine cutting in and out, convincing him even more on his belief that it had traction control. It actually didn't. You know, traction control was banned at the time, was reintroduced in Spain. Mm. It actually didn't. It had torque control, which anticipated the wheel spin rather than reacted to it, but much the same effect. But that was a subtlety that had passed everybody else by too. But he said it made him feel even more determined in that moment. So it was a very, very sweet moment for him. And it was a very exciting moment for F1. And how, how did that go down inside Williams, Jonathan? Uh, I, I seem to remember the garage going absolutely nuts. And I certainly caught a look because I was actually at that race because uh, there was Formula 3000 there as a support, which I was working on. So that was my main reason for going to races back then. And I just remember my father rarely sort of breaks sort of hit that sort of concentration style emotion. You even look at videos of like when Michael is spinning his wheels in the gravel after the famous Villeneuve Schumacher type deciding collision and he's still very focused. But I think a big sort of grin came across my father's face. And uh, I was, but so it, it really was that sort of arrival point of somebody that we all loved. And we had that sort of expectation, that sort of punk style of expectation about Juan Pablo's approach and what he would bring to racing, especially in terms of uh, upsetting the yardstick that was Michael at the time. But it also takes me back. I and mean, One of the highlights with my father when he wasn't away racing during those 99 and 2000 seasons was actually Sunday nights and watching those champ car, those kart races that Juan Pablo was And I remember about nine months before Brazil, it would have been summer of 2000, we were watching and again, which I'm sure most people listening will have done so, it's just a phenomenal bit of YouTube, just the... Michigan 500, which was along with Fontana, just where those champ car uh, carts were just absolutely phenomenal. The speeds they were getting up to was just crazy. And of course, they had that sort of Hanford wing on the back, which almost made a NASCAR race where you almost had to draft and time it. And the last lap of the 2000 Michigan 500, and then, and then, and then Ben Edwards, bless him, it sounded like he was having a heart attack trying to commentate on it. I mean, it was so intense between one Pablo and Michael Andretti, and mainly because when they went side by side into the last turn, they were fighting for the slipstream of a back marker in front. So almost like bumping each other at 230 miles an hour. When Juan Pablo got it by a fraction, my father almost chanted about three or four times in a row, Michael Schumacher, look out, Michael Schumacher, look out. And it was like, because I think my father by then knew that he'd got the deal done to bring him back to Formula One for 2001. And it, I would sort of look back, I was sort of, relate those two moments, the last lap of the Michigan 500 against one Michael in Andretti versus what we're talking about now, the restart at Brazil in 2001 versus the other Michael Schumacher. It was just almost what we expected, really. We knew that that was in there. We just had to wait and see in what form it would first introduce itself in Formula One. And I guess what better way can we all look back in terms of the restart in that Brazilian Grand Prix in 2001? Montoya led the race comfortably after that until lap 39 when he famously laps the arrows of Jos Verstappen who pulls back in behind him and promptly runs over the back of him. There was surprise in Brazil uh, with everyone who was at the race uh, reporting on it about how calm Montoya was afterwards, certainly in public anyway. He admitted he was disappointed, saying it was going to be one of the best days of my life and it turned into a bad one, but he didn't want to dwell on the uh, disappointment and next time out at Imola, he said he'd have been more annoyed if he'd already won 10 races that year and was fighting for the championship, then he would have gone ballistic. Uh, Verstappen says that Montoya braked very early, but he apologises and is fined $15,000, which Arrows uh, briefly considers appealing. Verstappen said, everybody saw I played fair. I went off my line to give way. Our telemetry shows that I had less speed and braked 30 metres earlier than normal. I don't know what happened. So just quickly, Jonathan, was Juan Pablo that calm in private as well? I think so. I mean, 
he, he, he had a very relaxed sort of nature about life and about racing that wasn't always there, but he could tap into it pretty much. He was there most of the time. And I think, he, I mean, and again, what he said about sort of it being, had there been more on the line? He, I mean, I think he was certainly a lot more aggrieved a few years later about the penalty uh, applied for colliding with Barry Kello in Indy 2003 when he was fighting for a world championship. I think it was just, yeah, that's what it is. That's racing. He was an old school racer, so he underknew these things. Yeah, I mean, certainly there were no tantrums. I think he knew he'd made his mark. He had, I mean, he'd been strong all weekend. It was a big step for him. It's racing, you know, if if you put your cars on track, you have to accept that things like this are going to happen. And But it was almost just that perfect little moment about what, six, seven, eight hours after this incident happened between Juan Pablo and Jos Verstappen, a group of us at Williams, including myself, found ourselves in parallel checking queues at the with, with uh, amongst others, Jos Verstappen, <laughs> uh, Mike Coughlin, who, of course, went on to be uh, a big part of Williams going forward. Jos uh, crashed his baggage trolley in front of us as well. And the moment I wasn't lost of him, but it said, I, I cannot happen. He bumped into somebody else and all of Jos's bags sprawled out onto the floor in the checking queue. And it was all these people wearing Williams uniform, just having a front row seat to this. It wasn't lost on him and it wasn't lost on us. But essentially, uh, yeah, he's a second accident of the day. So, uh, so yeah, I remember that one as well. I wonder if he got fined 15 grand for that as well. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. <laughs> probably, yeah, he probably got away with that one. After Brazil, <laughs> the talk immediately goes to playing up the rivalry between Montoya and Schumacher, which I think a lot of people, including as we've heard Frank, were looking forward to. Patrick Head says, I think Michael is worried. He's recognised that there is someone out there as tough as him. Gerhard Berger says Montoya left a calling card with the overtake. And Schumacher's old Benetton boss, Flavio Briatore, says what Montoya did to Schumacher is what Schumacher has done to many drivers in the past. Schumacher gives an exclusive interview to Autosport magazine between the races and he says Montoya doesn't have any respect for other drivers which I didn't either when I started and that is quite right. Why should you? As a driver you feel you are faster so you try as long as you don't punt other drivers off like Montoya did to Irvine in the first race. It's great to have him in F1. I'm happy to see a guy like him coming in doing well. Normally people who come from kart suffer in F1 He's a good racer, which he showed in Brazil with quite a good manoeuvre. I like these kind of guys because we can have good fights. He does say that if both Williams drivers had finished the race in Brazil, Ralph would have won because he was five to eight temps quicker than Juan Pablo, and that's a huge amount of time in F1. So, Mark, how do we assess Schumacher's uh, public reaction? He'd, he'd obviously had time to think about Brazil, knew these questions were coming. Was this perhaps him starting the games with Montoya? Yeah, I think it was. Um, it, it was, a, it was a, um, always part of Michael's game, and Montoya could take it as a compliment that he'd been singled out for it, I guess. But there, were, there was truth in Michael's barbs. I mean, Ralph was qualifying consistently quicker at that stage, which just makes those comments that bit more stinging. And um, Montoya was always exceptionally good at throwing the I don't care line, and I actually believe he didn't care. He, he was really quite psychologically airtight. And that was one of his great strengths as a competitor, much tougher actually in that regard, I believe, than Michael himself, who was driven partly by a fear that there was someone who might be faster than him. So he had to do everything in his power to prevent that translating into beating him. And that was the opposite side of the coin, where Michael was so much stronger than Montoya, that I don't care attitude that helped him not have doubts was extreme. And it extended to not actually caring enough about digging into all the other things that bring you success. Um, you can only be who you are, ultimately. And then that was Montoya and that was Schumacher. And they were, they were very different animals. Yeah, next time out at Imola, Williams delivers on the hype to win a race. But this time it's Ralph who gets the job done. Montoya retires, although not before a pass around the outside of Jano Trulli at the Tamburello chicane that Frank says was better than the Schumacher pass in Brazil. After Imola, Montoya admits that qualifying is the thing he's finding most difficult about adapting to F1. He preferred how they did it in America, where you had two half an hour sessions for qualifying, whereas in F1 at this time, it was one hour and 12 laps, so effectively four hot laps. As Mark said there, Montoya really was struggling uh, for single lap pace at this point. After four races, his average grid position was seventh and Ralph's was third, and the gap between them across the four races uh, was six tenths of a second. At this point, Montoya says, Frank and Patrick are getting tougher with me. 
And he says they panic a little bit and it's his job to deal with that. So, Jonathan, do you think it was fair to expect Montoya to take a little bit of time to get on top of something like qualifying or was the team right to start putting the pressure on him by this point? Uh, I think certainly fair to expect. I mean, in the case of his yardstick being Ralph, there was a guy who'd been with Williams for two years. So the full package prior to Juan Pablo's arriving, two years of racing and combined testing, which was a lot then. So a great deal of experience and added to that two prior seasons in F1 with Jordan. So uh, four years more prime experience. And as we know, we're, we're talking a fine line to separate these averages and it's those details, those technical workings, all of which experience is a big current of plays a big part in. So I think in terms of his rookie season coming back from a similar discipline of racing where the basics of being good or bad will be the same, but the complexities will be quite different. I think certainly acceptable. And of course, as we'll get onto later, it righted itself quite quickly in terms of putting pressure on, yeah, it was happening. I do remember in my office at Grove having a bit of a heart-to-heart -heart with Juan Pablo. I think something had been said and it, it had gotten to him a little bit and he thought it was a touch unjust. And yeah, we made mistakes to that end as well. I mean, we're not here to talk about 2003. We're here to talk about 2001. But, you know, I love and respect my father and Patrick more than anything, but probably sort of post the 2003 French Grand Prix at Manicourt, things weren't sort of well handled by then. And you could probably argue that we lost a driver because of it, because that was probably a trigger point with Juan Pablo to sign well ahead of time for McLaren. So yeah, but, but still that is sort of the right and the privilege of your team bosses, especially guys with phenomenal track records as my father and Patrick and who know more than anyone what it takes to sort of get the job done and they know more than what it takes. Sorry, sorry, they know more what is needed to get things done. So I think we were right to get the, yeah, you have to put the pressure on. Do you always find the balance and fall on the correct side of that as in terms of the role of being a team boss? No, nobody does. I mean, even, even the other great team bosses like Ron Dennis, Jean Todd, you know, all of the others down the years, Christian Horner, I'm sure they would all admit that no, they didn't get it right all the time. And probably in this case, we didn't either, but we were certainly right to apply it when we saw necessary. Yeah, and we head to the Spanish Grand Prix next time out where bizarrely driver aids are now legal again. Uh, traction control, launch control and automatic gears are back. They made legal because the FAA was having trouble policing them, but they'd been delayed because Ferrari had blocked them coming in for the start of the season. Williams didn't use traction control in the race due to reliability fears, but they did use launch control, and Montoya makes a mega start to go from 12th to 6th, uh, catching Villeneuve napping on the way into Turn 1 to nab the final place. From there, it's a race of attrition, and when Mika Hakkinen famously breaks down on the final lap, Montoya is bumped up to 2nd, so his first finish in F1 is also a podium, and he said he nearly missed Park Ferme because he was distracted by his mechanics jumping up and down. Mark, it was good for Juan Pablo to get off off the mark here and, and to get, get some points, get a finish, get a podium, but was it actually quite underwhelming given that before Hakkinen broke down, he was a lap behind? Yeah, it was. It was, in, in truth, probably a fairly ordinary performance, but at least it got the monkey off his back. Um, the Barcelona was and is an aerodynamically demanding track and they're not all that power sensitive. So it wasn't an ideal track for Williams, but Montoya certainly didn't transcend a car. It's not a car where Montoya's bullying style would really work as that can help you get a response from a recalcitrant car in it and corner entry, but it, it won't work on the corners that are as long as they are there where it's all about the car in F1 in general, but especially there. Williams is hoping to run traction control in Austria next time out after a successful test and hopes are high given that the what was then called the A1 ring, very much a power circuit and the BMW engine, as we've discussed, had plenty of that. Montoya does lead uh, the early part of the race, having started second. Ralph's behind him until he retires early on. The Michelin tyres then go through their graining phase where they drop off in pace before coming back later in the stint. And Montoya ends up with a train behind him consisting of Michael Schumacher, Barrichello, Verstappen, Coulthard, Raikkonen and Panis. Schumacher attacks into what we now know as turn three on lap 16. Montoya defends the inside but locks up and goes straight on, taking them both into the gravel. Schumacher rejoins ahead but they've both lost places and Montoya retires later on anyway. Montoya said the reason he couldn't turn in when they got to the corner was that he locked the rear tyres so he had no choice but to stay 
straight. Now, Jonathan, in a moment, we'll look at uh, how Schumacher reacted to this. But what did you guys at Williams make of this moment at the time? Was it a bit of over-exuberance from Juan Pablo because he was battling Michael again? I think perhaps a little bit of a perfect storm in that that is the character of Juan Pablo. I mean, he's just not going to roll over no matter what sort of... uh, what issues he might be carrying car-wise that means he has got a lot of pressure from behind. That's him. He's going to race till the absolute last moment, the absolute last fraction of a second. You just know that he's never going to roll over and give things up. And he probably, I mean, whether he would admit this or not, probably thrived a little bit more on the idea of knowing that the prime person he was inconveniencing in all of this was Michael, because Michael obviously therefore was under pressure as well. Although you could argue that to an extent, Barry Keller wasn't going to apply too much. I think also, if memory serves, we knew going into that race that the first eight or 10 laps, we were going to go through a pretty troubling graining phase with the tyres, with the Michelins, um, which probably explains, because just reading through the queue here, I think all of these guys were on Bridgestones. I mean, Michael, Barry Kello, Verstappen, Coulthard, Sauber with Raikkonen was still Bridgestone. Then I think Panis with BAR then was still Bridgestone. There was a big sort of, uh, defecting, I think, more to Michelin for 2001. But I think if I'm correct, all of those other guys were on Bridgestone. So, it, uh, yeah, so perhaps there was a little bit of, in terms of what was happening versus the character in the car. I think probably there was, it was sort of expectation and it was racing. So, yeah, I think that's probably where we were with it that day. Schumacher wasn't impressed. He said the fight had been fair until that incident. Then he tried to take me out at the corner and I had to go onto the grass because I couldn't turn in on him. He wasn't looking where he was going. He was looking where I was going. I will have to look at the video, but I have a feeling that because he missed his breaking point, he tried to take me with him. That was a bit unnecessary. I'm going to have a word with him. When Montoya hears about those comments, uh, particularly the I need to have a word with him, he says in his regular autosport column from that year, what Michael was really trying to do by complaining was help his brother. He likes to try to do things to get at me like that, but it doesn't matter. I'm not too concerned whether I'm liked or not. If someone doesn't like what I'm doing, they should come and talk to me, get it all out, and then shut up. (laughs) So, Mark, we're back to talking about Schumacher and Montoya, another war of words. Was this Schumacher perhaps trying to bring Montoya down a peg or two? Because I think we knew by this point that, you know, a new thorn was in his side. (laughs) I'm actually, I'm not sure that was what was going on there, actually. It's listening to Montoya's uh, response there, it just reminds me, I can see the look on his face as he's doing it. He he loved that sort of stuff. He just, he he loved, he he loved that thought of, you know, giving it back. Um, Whereas I don't think Michael did particularly. I don't think Michael enjoyed it particularly. He just, he, he would employ it sometimes as a tactic. But I think, in this case, it was just the emotion of the moment. He was asked that shortly after that had happened. I don't think that was actually part of Michael's psychops campaign. Um, but uh, yeah, as I say, Van Pablo didn't really care anyway. I think those comments from Michael came out in the top three finishers press conference, and Juan Pablo was watching that in the motorhome, and uh, he was quite he was quite looking forward to the moment that never came, which was I'm going to go and have a word with him. Shall we say he was. He, basically quite vocal while watching that he was basically almost talking to Michael through the TV screen in our motorhome saying <laughs> something along the lines of bring it on or something so he was actually quite up for the chat which never actually came oh what a shame Schumacher a week later says he's watched the footage back and he says the move in Austria was pure racing just like the pass in Brazil he says Montoya is a good racer a hard racer and that's what we need in Formula One so Mark was that an understandable backtrack perhaps once the dust had settled and the adrenaline had worn off yeah, Michael was very good at recognising and switching off anything that was just going to distract and provide negative energy. This was a niggle that didn't really need to be fought, and um, he had bigger fish to fry than that, I think. Montoya makes an interesting comment about Williams over this weekend as well, saying there are a lot of things going on in the team that I'm not happy with, a lot of things I cannot do anything about. I just have to get on with it. It's very difficult to change things. I don't think I get any less than Ralph. But with him having the experience, the team at this point is around him. He is not more of a voice, but he just has a little bit more, especially with BMW. Uh, Montoya crashes out in Monaco after a handful of laps. And Williams' finishing record is in the spotlight by this point because from 14 starts with both cars, they have only three finishes. Uh, BMW said they have to work on reliability, although it's fair to say that the failures at this point were a mix of Williams, 
BMW uh, related mechanical problems and the odd incident. Ahead of the Canadian Grand Prix, uh, Ralph Schumacher, Ralph's manager, Willy Weber, says he's close to signing a new deal with Williams for 2003, which Jonathan mentioned earlier. That would, of course, make it Montoya versus Button to be Ralph's teammate. Jonathan, we already knew by this point that Button was having a pretty torrid time in a difficult Benetton in 2001. Was he still in the mix for coming back or could Montoya feel pretty safe about his longer term prospects at Williams? I think pretty safe. I mean, I think certainly from my father's point of view, which I would take to mean Patrick's point of view also, I think Juan Pablo really, that there was a big commitment, not only for all of the reasons that you make these big decisions in terms of who's driving for you. There was also a big decision from the heart. You know, he was our guy. And I think so probably what my father and co were assessing was when the next contract point came up for the other car, which was going into the 2003 season, would it be Ralph or Jensen alongside him? And probably what was beginning to happen now, what with Ralph's sort of performances in the spring summer races of 2001, winning three of them in total versus Juan Pablo's initial struggles, what was going on with Jensen at Benetton. It probably, if anything, it solidified Ralph's position much more because Juan Pablo was struggling a little bit, but I don't think there was any ever doubt. So the only effect it probably had was that both the fact that both of them were struggling in different teams and Ralph wasn't, it certainly almost set the tone and the team for 2003 going forward there and then. Montoya's struggles continue in Canada where Ralph wins again and Juan Pablo crashes out. Uh, Ralph defeats Michael in a straight fight there. And by this point, the Williams top brass are really talking Ralph up. They're saying he's as good as they come now and ready to challenge for the championship. But talking about Montoya... Frank says uh, Juan Pablo needs time, but he has got a lot of pressure. He gives a great little quote at this point, which I have to read out in full. Frank says, Mika Hakkinen spent two years at McLaren taking every opportunity he had to have an accident and look at what has happened since. Patrick Head is a little less supportive. He says, I think I was quoted recently as saying Ralph could acquire a little wisdom still, but I think I should point that more at Juan Pablo. He says Montoya's form is a serious concern but points out there have been accidents and reliability problems that weren't his fault. So between us, we've got to clean our act up. Mark, was there a growing sense that there was some pressure building on Montoya by this point, particularly with Ralph seemingly getting everything together? Uh, if it was intentional, if it was if Patrick trying to put pressure on um, Juan Pablo, yeah, it's fully understandable. He was under-delivering at this stage of the season, even though his potential was quite evident. Uh, he was a rookie after all. No matter how good you are, how talented, there'll still be empty data banks. And I don't think Montoya is wired up in a way that would allow him to reflect on this, though. And he'd just get contrary to any criticism and say he didn't care. Yeah, Jonathan, what did you what did you make of how Frank and Patrick were handling things at this point? I think as per sort of the quotes we've just covered from either of them, that's exactly what I would expect their sort of like sort of snapshot take on the situation to be. My father is very good at sort of using examples and just sort of using history and his own personal experiences to perhaps not only express to the watching world sort of what might be going on and what needs to be considered, but also to the driver in question. And likewise, Patrick would probably be a little bit blunter and perhaps a little bit more direct in this. Uh, I, I think behind the scenes, it wasn't too much of a... I mean, I think it was more just sometimes you have to use pressure as a tool, you know, you, it's one of the many things in the repertoire. I and mean, obviously we all know that Enzo Ferrari completely put it to the forefront of how he approached his drivers, particularly in sort of when he was very hands-on, 50s, 60s, 70s. And then that's just something which these guys at the top of the tree use. You know, pressure does, pressure, pressure when sort of directed carefully can be, you know, a pretty potent tool and deliver the results that you're looking for. So I think... Yeah, pretty consistent with what my sort of experiences and expectations would be based upon how I how I believe my father and Patrick went about things, not just them, but across their time at Williams. Things start to pick up from here. Montoya is second at the Nürburgring, where the big story is Michael trying to put Ralph in the pit wall at the start. Montoya said Michael went a bit too far and he actually cited his own problems with Michael Andretti, who we've already mentioned uh, when he was racing in America, saying it was only once he didn't back off and they had a shunt that he earned Andretti's respect. He thinks Ralph shouldn't have backed off to make the same point to his brother. 
Mark, what did you make of that start? Was Montoya right that Ralph should have stood his ground? Yes, he absolutely should have. Just like a lot of drivers should have during Michael's time, actually. Um, Jean Alessi at the 95 Nürburgring chicane comes to mind. Sometimes you have to have the accident rather than back down to an unreasonable move. And I think this was uh, one of those examples. Yeah, Team orders, uh, or perhaps that should be team cooperation, are the talk of the next two races. In France, Ralph is asked to let Montoya through before a pit stop because he's struggling. But Ralph says his radio wasn't working. At Silverstone, Montoya's on a lighter fuel load and Ralph is stuck behind Barrichello. So Williams asked Ralph to move aside and he doesn't. This time, Ralph admits he chose not to follow the order because he felt confident he could pass Barrichello. And he also says later on that uh, the Silverstone order, it was he says, it was not a request, it was a question at the wrong time. Montoya plays this all down in public, saying he felt calm about it and the team told him Ralph wanted to have a go at Barrichello. He says there's no problem between them. As long as they keep sharing information, it doesn't matter if they get on. However, he does say he would have obeyed the orders that Ralph chose to ignore. Jonathan, with Juan Pablo starting to to build some momentum here, was this perhaps Ralph trying to make of a bit of a power play now uh, he had a teammate who was becoming a threat? I think so. And I think our sport is littered with examples of drivers that do that and, uh, I mean, I think there was an exchange at the 2014 Chinese Grand Prix very early in the Vettel-Ricardo partnership at Red Bull, where Vettel was quite similar to what to what we're reminiscing Ralph was in these races here. And so I think so. I mean, you're always going to try and find a way to manipulate things or just plainly just stick your finger up at your teammate as per Alonso in quality <laughs> for the 2007 Hungarian Grand Prix. You're always going to find a way to do that. I mean, I think, you know, Breaking it down a bit more specifically, I, I mean, I could be wrong. I'm certainly not the best person to ask. I'm probably in, in in the top 10 or 15 of the list, but I'm not the best person to ask. I mean, I don't think Ralph was necessarily the most compliant human being. I mean, he wasn't perhaps the best person of being told what to do. And when you wrap that all up in the body of a, of a competitive racing driver, those are probably the things that you're going to have to uh, deal with because they're not going to happen. So, yeah, I would, I would say a little bit of Ralph just trying to uh, power play, stamp his authority, get things perhaps, uh, things a bit more in his direction. But, uh, yeah, so probably yes, I would say to that. And more importantly, Montoya says after Silverstone, he feels he's finally turned a corner. And that would appear to be the case when we get to Germany because he leads the race comfortably from pole. This was on the old Hockenheim that was basically all straights. So very much BMW territory. He loses the lead with a fueling rig problem in his pit stop and then the engine blows up and the needle continues after the race between the drivers. Ralph says Montoya's engine blew up because he pushed too hard at the start, but Patrick Head refutes that by saying they were running the same revs and engine settings. Williams suspects the long stay in the pits caused Montoya's engine to get too hot. But Montoya has a dig as well over the weekend saying pole felt great, not just because it was Ralph's home race, but because I wanted to do something special for BMW as well. So, Mark, although he didn't get the result, was this weekend the confirmation that Montoya had had stepped up to that top level? Because if we look back to another power circuit in Canada, he'd been nowhere near Ralph there, and yet here he is, he's quicker than him, and he's starting to uh, take a few little digs at him as well. Yeah, it was. He made some sort of breakthrough here, whether it was on setup or understanding the tyres better, I don't know. But, yeah, so he'd given himself access to this to his talent properly, and on a track, as they say, that was very favourable to the car. So his confidence would have just spiralled upwards. He won't actually have been that gutted about the retirement, I don't think, as it wasn't his fault. He'd have been happier with his personal performance than gutted about the non-score. So, yeah, I think it was a breakthrough a weekend for him. The retirement was definitely, as Patrick said, to, I, mean, I mean, that was a typical sweltering day at Hockenheim and 30-plus seconds being stationary whilst the, whilst the refueling rig malfunctioned. I mean... I remember we, I mean, it, it perhaps shows a little bit which way the Williams side of the team was heading. We were watching in the motorhome Ralph's post-race press conference where we've just won the race with this guy and he makes this comment about, I think, Juan Pablo blew his engine up and he actually got booed <laughs> by, by his own team members. He actually got booed. And then I remember flash forward about four or five months later to the Williams Christmas party about probably about a thousand people in a room, all the team members and their partners and the drivers got introduced one after the other. And there was like sort of clapping for Ralph. And then when one Pablo was introduced, the room just erupted 
So you could probably see that Ralph, sorry, Juan Pablo was becoming more the Williams driver because I do clearly remember, I thought, we've just won the race with this guy and you're watching his post-race press conference and you're booing him. Okay, he did sort of say something somewhat derogatory about Juan Pablo in terms of he blew the engine, but I did think that's a bit weird, isn't it? You guys are actually booing him. It was, uh, it, 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 it was one of those like, weird little moments that, that you lock away. Montoya leads another front row lockout a couple of races later at Spa, but Williams's race unravels, well, immediately here. The, uh, the start is aborted when Heitzheld Frentzen stalls his Prost on the grid, and when they go to start another formation lap, Montoya's car stalls, so he's put to the back. After four laps, the race is red flagged after a huge crash for Luciano Berti and Eddie Irvine. And at this point, Williams discover Montoya's rear beam wing has failed, so they try to replace Ralph's as a precaution, but can't get it done in time. So we get that embarrassing image of Ralph's car being left up on the jacks as the field sets off and he has to start from the back now. Montoya retires again and Ralph can only get back to seventh. This time Montoya says, it's harder to accept that when my Williams is not right at the front of the field, it runs well and we have great pit stops. When things are going well for us, events seem to get in the way of a good finish. BMW is not impressed with how this race day unfolds. Mario Tyson says, Every problem can be solved, but only a top team is able to solve them all. Today was a clear indication of what we said all season. We are not yet a top team. We have days in which we are top, like in qualifying, but a top team is prepared to deliver every day and on every track. There's a way for us to go. Patrick Head calls the blunders severe errors and agrees Williams still has a lot to learn. Jonathan, do you think as Williams became more competitive during this season, you know, they were more exposed perhaps at the front of the field, did this show that the team perhaps wasn't as sharp in those scenarios as they had had been in their 90s heyday when they'd been at the front on a regular basis? Probably, yes. And certainly, as you say, the more up front you are, the greater the pressure is because the exposure is that much greater. And I mean, I, I would say Spa was a particularly bad example. I mean, we were absolutely terrible on Sunday for all of those reasons. No excuses. I remember being there. It was embarrassing, especially... When you've got a front row start, there are few ways worse you can imagine it might end up than how it actually did. So, yeah, the, there were certainly cracks, consistencies, holes, incompletion, whatever you may want to call them, just in that we just weren't, our makeup just wasn't complete yet. I mean, we had, we had sort of cycled down a bit from the team that dominated most of the way through the 90s. Um, we had different ways of doing things with different people arriving at this point in time, 2001, and perhaps the gelling wasn't quite there yet. There were still some things, and Spa just greatly, it's just a bit of a perfect storm. Spa just greatly exposed those. I mean, I, I mean that sort of rear wing beam thing, I remember, was just a very, very odd thing. And uh, I mean, I'm sure that we would have spotted it, but I think, I think you actually can see in the footage that to bring him back into conversation, it was Jos Verstappen. Uh, who evidently seemed to get quite familiar with the back end of our car that year, but it was Jos Verstappen who parked behind Juan Pablo on the grid and as they got out the cars for the mechanics got there said, bit of a problem here, you might want to just get somebody to have a look at that. And uh, I think in the confusion as to how this has happened, we lost the time that we needed to effectively change Ralph's car because it then became a policy decision for safety, which is paramount that you have to do this. We don't quite know why there's been a failure, so we have to make a change. And yeah, and of course, but yeah, simply wasn't good enough. You have to be your own cr biggest critic in this business. And you know, we were terrible that day in Spa. We, we were mega on Saturday and like a different bunch of people turned up on Sunday because we just weren't the team that we were on Saturday for whatever reason that, after, that weekend. Mark, was that a trend you were observing going to the races that year? Did you feel that Williams was perhaps missing that little bit of familiarity with with being at the front or with BMW being harsh at this point? Um, I think it was there. There was a certain inconsistency in the operations and sometimes it went like a dream and other times it didn't. So, yeah, I think it's, it's probably something in that. you got the spotlight of, of, of the front being upon you. So um, people are just getting used to operating under that spotlight, I guess. And it had been, been a while, it had been a few years. Let's get to Monza, which is the final race we're going to focus on. Montoya gets a new chassis here that Ralph had had as well for Spa. And Patrick Head tells him before the weekend, we need to work very hard with you to make sure you lose your virginity this year. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure Patrick meant win a race uh, rather than anything more personal. <laughs> Montoya does get his first win, but uh, here it wasn't straightforward. The Williams drivers were killing their rear tyres. So to combat the oversteer, 
Williams makes a front wing adjustment, but it goes too far the other way. So the oversteer becomes understeer. Earlier in the race, uh, two-stopping Barrichello got ahead of Montoya, but he loses around seven seconds with a fuel rig problem at one of his pit stops. In the end, Montoya hangs on to win by five seconds. So perhaps that time loss was costly for Barrichello. But Jonathan, if there was a bit of good fortune involved in Montoya finally getting his first win, we weren't going to begrudge him that by this point with all the misfortune he'd had earlier in the year. No, I mean, he, I mean, he fully deserved it. I mean, really, the German Grand Prix was his pretty much the whole way through the weekend. And as we know, that went away. And yeah, I mean, he... He really deserved it, and I mean, he, he probably. I mean, there was as we there was an awful lot for not just the drivers, but for everyone to handle that week, that weekend. I mean, we'd had the tragedy, the the terrible situation of nine eleven in that week, and then which of course wasn't just racing wide; it was worldwide. And then all of us had to sort of feel for Alex Zanardi, who'd had the accident in uh, uh, in Germany the day before in the Champ Car race. So. The way that Juan Pablo handled it, and I thought all of what was going on on the grid with the with like the, the failed driver agreement not to race for the opening lap for safety reasons. Yeah, I, I think really all in all, it was one. And then in, in some ways, similar to the 2012 Spanish Grand Prix, it just felt like something was, you know, something was meant to happen if you sort of feel or believe in those things, which I don't fully, but sometimes find myself wandering towards. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. You would not begrudge a guy... Uh, in his position with his achievements, with his ups and downs to take a win in the 2001 season. And absolutely. And uh, it was it was his day and he fully deserved it. And Mark, what was it like at Monza that weekend? Jonathan's kind of set the scene there. We did have, I think Michael Schumacher was the ringleader in trying to not get the drivers to race on the opening lap, or at least for the first two chicanes uh, with, with all that had gone on recently. And of course, there was the accident the year before that had taken the life of a marshal. So it's kind of a subdued weekend for F1 itself. And Schumacher was particularly affected by that. What was it like being there? Yeah, it was a very lucky, um, it was a somber mood. Um, and I think the, 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 the driver, the attempted driver agreement was, was part of that. It was just part of the, the general mood uh, of, of the place. And it was well-intentioned, I think, and, and, and understandable, but ill-conceived. And I think um, it would have invited, if it had gone ahead, it would have invited too much ambiguity. So, you know, wait, how, how do you define what's actually racing and what's, what's not? And that, that's just more dangerous than just straightforward racing. And I think um, those who refused to take part in, in that agreement were absolutely right. Yeah, I think Jacques Villeneuve was one of the first drivers to uh, refuse to agree with that. And there were actually reports afterwards that Flavio Briatore uh, borderline threatened his drivers uh, if they uh, went with that agreement. And after that, more and more team bosses tent got involved and said, look, this is falling apart. And I think that's where the ambiguity comes from that Mark talks about as well. You can't have some drivers thinking they're not racing, others being ordered to race. And it was probably best for them all to just get on with it because they are professionals. Juan Pablo agreed with it, but typical Juan Pablo, he was very honest and said, I'm on pole position. Why would I not agree with it? <laughs> he said, because I think it was brewing about two or three hours before the race. And uh, I think Michael was still trying to choreograph it on the grid. And uh, I, think there's one, there's, I think there's a moment where Michael's trying to have a word in either, is it, I think it's a Lacey or Heidfeld's ear and a cameraman gets a bit too close and gets sort of a bit of a swell, not the man, but the camera got a bit of a slapping from Michael. I think Michael was quite sort of agitated by the whole thing and trying to make it happen. And, uh, but Juan Pablo, just typical Juan Pablo, roaring on it and said, I'm on pole position. Of course, I agree with it. So, uh, so yeah. I admire the honesty. I've always wondered uh, if the pole man would agree yeah. with that. And I like the fact that uh, yeah. he was up front about it. After the race, he was up front as well. Say much like he did in Germany when he said it was good to out-qualify Ralph. Uh, in winning in Italy, he said it was good to beat the Ferraris. And uh, this was the culmination of, of quite a summer, really, for Montoya. If you think back to kind of around Canada time, when we were talking about the team putting him under massive pressure, not getting the results, Ralph seemed to be on top of the world. Patrick Head summed it up best here, saying, now we've got two people capable of mounting a challenge for the championship just a few months after the talk had been that only Ralph was ready and Montoya had a lot of work to do. So, Mark... Just how impressive was Montoya's development during such a short phase in the middle of the season? 
he did make a step change and he, he inevitably developed as, as well just by virtue of getting miles under his belt, working with the engineers, the tire guys, whatever. So he, he filled up those data banks I was talking about before, probably without even realizing. But I'd, I'd argue he didn't take on board the lessons that were there to be learned because he's he's just not a reflective enough character for that. He, he was and is all reactive, not reflective. And you need you need both. He had huge raw talent, but sometimes did access only a small proportion of it. It was it was never properly finessed. He isn't psychologically wired up for finesse and nuance. And on some days that can be unbeatable. He, he can be like an advancing army that can't be stopped and can ambush you, can overtake you in places that are invisible to the others. But racing, especially F1, is, is more complicated than that and the, the, the big overall picture. Jonathan, what did you make witnessing this progression up close, you know, being inside the team and seeing... How, how Montoya changed as a driver and how the, all the dynamic in F1 and in Williams shifted around him around this time. I think for me, going back to my remarks at the beginning, just in terms of what I personally felt I had invested in Juan Pablo from a career point of view, it was just it was just a very rich experience, which only magnifies more over time, just how, how he came in from the highs of Brazil, the wobbles after that, then through to the summer, those three poles in four races through to just winning in Monza, just all of the fun. Behind. I mean, he, he, he's a fun guy, you know, he's, he, he's an old school, passionate racer, heart on his sleeve. He's a lot of fun. I mean, it doesn't take much to have a laugh or a joke with him or for him to say something inappropriate, which just gets everyone going. And I mean, just even things and, and just what a, what a hoarder he was, you know, he kind of loved the kind of freebies and things like that. I remember going to his apartment in Oxford and, Live, just randomly live on the sofa was an entire like one half of the coil bank of a BMW V10 engine. And I said, what's this? <laughs> he went, well, I like it on it. And it's like, do BMW know you've got this? He went, I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm sure they've got spares, but still to BMW, well, I liked it. So I wanted it. And just actually lying on the sofa of the parked in Oxford was like part of a BMW engine. And it was just little things like that that made it, you know, just a very, very rich experience, which you know, I'll always be grateful for. That seems like a fitting way to end this story. We've taken you on a remarkable and somewhat bumpy ride of Montoya's journey to his maiden F1 win. I'm sure that won't be the last time we look in depth for any of the stories around what followed during the rest of his career. Uh, massive thank you to Mark for joining us again and a huge thank you, of course, to Jonathan. Uh, anyone who can make that many diversions and tell that many stories about Jacques Villeneuve without me asking is uh, is all right in my book. And welcome back again in the future. Um, <laughs> yes. People keep asking me when we're going to do Heref 97. I think we'll do it in Series 3 and, uh, and we'll make sure we can get you on again uh, for some memories from that. But it's been fantastic and, and a great time, I think, to look back at, at some Williams stories. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been wonderful. For now, though, uh, listeners, remember to get in touch with at We Are The Race on social media using the hashtag BringBackV10s with your comments and questions for our series finale. Leave us a five-star review if you feel so inclined and would like to support the show. And we'll see you again soon to go back in time to 1991 when Michael Schumacher arrived on the F1 scene with Jordan and was almost immediately poached by Benetton. <laughs>